So Money episode 343, Jennifer Witter. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. So Money is brought to you today by Wix.com. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 75 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer made customizable templates to choose from the drag and drop editor and even video backgrounds. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. The site empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy, too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. This is So Money, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. I have a friend joining me today, a longtime friend. I've known Jennifer for, I would say, at least 10 years. Jennifer Witter is the CEO and founder of the Borland Group. It's a national PR firm headquartered in New York City. And it's not often as a journalist that you become friends with the publicist, the publicists who email you, write to you, call you, uh, grab you for five minutes at a conference to tell you about their company. And I'm all for pitches. I love working with publicists for the most part. They are very helpful to me and instrumental in the work that I do. We wouldn't have guests on this show if it wasn't for the good work and the kind work of publicists who represent amazing people and amazing brands. But rarely is it that you know you actually befriend these people and your personal life and you actually go to dinners and um, you share personal stories. And Jennifer and I really clicked way back when, when I was working at New York One. And she uh, initially, you know, we started out as a, as just business friends. We worked together. She sent me pitches. I had some of her guests on the show. She represented a lot of great real estate clients in the New York City area. And the show is sometimes about real estate. So Long story short, we've been in touch for all these years. Her business has exploded, and now she's on the show today to share some of her lessons learned, but also, of course, her financial mindset, her financial behaviors, how she has been able to build wealth in the city of New York, how as a single female entrepreneur, how she's been able to build her business to the point where she was named one of the top 10 black CEOs entrepreneurs in the country. And uh, she also has a book, which is fabulous. It's called The Little Book of Big PR, 100 Plus Quick Tips to Grow Your Small Business. And Jennifer, in addition to getting her clients on top national and regional uh, platforms, her she herself has been featured in Fast Company and Bloomberg and the Huffington Post and thestreet.com. She's also an advocate for women in business and serves as an active member of Elevate New York. And she's also a really cool lady. You're going to feel that through this conversation conversation with her. Here we go. Here's my friend, Jennifer Witter. 
Jennifer Witter, welcome to So Money. How long have we known each other? Oh my gosh, Fernus, it must be at least 10, 12 years now. Do you know, I remember when we first met when you were working at New York One and you were the producer. Yes, I remember that. (laughs) You were great because I was brand new to producing. I came from Money Magazine where I was a junior reporter and I was given this really big job to run the business desk and produce business news for this 24-hour channel in New York. And you fed me a lot of great content. You were one of my top go-to publicists. Um, Everyone you gave me from a real estate expert to entrepreneurs, really just made my life so much easier and the work that I did so much better. So thank you. And it's nice to come full circle and have you on the show. I know it was always a pleasure working with you. Sometimes you, you know, you work with, uh, you know, in the media, and you're never quite sure. And I always knew that working with you, you would always be the utmost professionals. That my clients would be well taken care of, and the finished product was always, always perfect. So it's mutual here. As a journalist myself, speaking, this is just me speaking. I feel as though there. When relationships with publicists, they can go two ways, right? There's, there are the publicists that you look at and you think, oh, they're just, they're a little annoying. They keep, they keep emailing you and they're overly insistent and they don't really understand what your needs are and they keep pushing your clients. I mean, I still get pitches every day and I don't read them or I read one and then um, I can tell it wasn't written for me. It was just a copy and paste. And I feel like, that's the the type of publicist that I don't really like to work with. And it's a shame because they might represent great clients, but the publicist is really the the first step, right? And so you want to make sure that um, as a if you're the client that you're working with the right person. And then there are people like you who are, I look forward to getting emails from you because I know that every email, there'll be something valuable to me. You know how I operate. You've done your homework, you've done your research and you're nice and you're understanding. It's not going to be like, I'm going to be able to feature every one of your you know, clients in everything that I do, but, but more than occasionally you give me home runs and, um, how would you characterize your industry? I think it's a very, uh, hot, cold relationship that publicists have with journalists. I totally agree. And I have been in public relations now 30 years. And as I always say to my clients, and when I do speaking engagements with people who want to enter the field I tell them the number one pet peeve that I've been hearing since 1982 up until today, 2016, from journalists is how they uh, get connected uh, with publicists who don't know their beat, who don't know what they are covering, and it gets very annoying for them. And so one of the things that I learned early on is to study the journalist, to know what they're writing, the producer, look at what they're producing, study their writing style, study their topics and then shape a pitch that goes to them because I know you must receive hundreds upon hundreds of emails a day. Oh, yes. Yes. So how am I going to make mine stand out and what's the value to you? Because for you, you're looking for content and it can't just be anything to fill up that page or put on the air. So I make sure that when I put something together, it is of value, it's pinpointed, and I make sure that everyone is satisfied. And in my industry, and I love public relations, otherwise I wouldn't have been in it for all these years, that I hear one time too many that that happens. And it just is, it 
it doesn't help anyone. It pulls the profession down. So I always say to budding PR professionals, you know, do your homework, uh, work with the media, see what they want. And I also say that there are times when the journalist, for whatever reason, doesn't include your quote, your client in the piece. And you're not supposed to get snarky about it. Don't start yelling at them. Find out why and then say, okay, well, I appreciate it and hopefully we can work together at another time. And then just move on from that because it's not the journalist's fault. Sometimes it just happens that way. So I feel that with the hot and cold relationship that with publicists, that sometimes we need to do a little bit better with our homework. And with journalists, um, they really do need to understand that we are working for them, that we are their partner, and we want to provide them with content, content that will enable them. And that way, the relationship will be that much stronger. You describe public relations as a, an industry, a job that's not for wimps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very stressful. It's one of the most stressful jobs, in fact. And yeah. your career journey started working as a publicist for a big firm, Ketchum. And there it was very stressful. This was also back, I don't know, how many years ago was this? Well, when I was working at Ketchum, that was in the late 1990s. I started in PR uh, when I graduated from college, Fordham University, and I started out uh, actually as an intern in the PR department at the New York Botanical Garden. And then I moved into the agency world in 1989 and talk about an adjustment and a lot of people don't realize it. It's always listed, as you just mentioned, when the top most stressful fields. It's not like Samantha Jones in Sex and the City at all. And I was constantly getting sick and going to the doctor. And the doctor said to me, you know what, Jennifer, either you learn to deal with the stress or you get another job. And that is what I had to do. And with public relations, it's very strategic. It's very nuanced. It is very real-time, meaning if you, let's say, call me and say it's uh, 3.25 and I need to get a guest on at 4 o'clock, I have to hop to it. I have to get that guest together. I have to pull everything together for you and for the client. So it really is a very stressful job, but one where once you learn how to roll with the punches and you understand it, it becomes actually quite enjoyable. Tell us a little bit about the clients that you represent. At some point as a publicist, you have to pick an industry or a niche, right? Or a type of client that you represent. Okay, basically we focus on corporate visibility and our sweet spot is small businesses. And what we do is raise their awareness level to their target markets using a variety of peer tools whether it's media relations, networking, social media, speaker bureaus, writing, and we work with them closely. And what I tell clients, especially the new ones who have never worked with a PR agency, is that I need your time. I am your partner. Um, Your success is my success, but we cannot be successful until you spend you know, some time with us, especially at the beginning. And then once we really get to know the client and their field, then we are able to release some of their time and go out there and talk to the media and uh, present them in the strongest fashion possible. One of the things that I would say that I love, and I've always loved it, is working with the media and getting uh, that hit. Because again, I know it's not easy and I always 
you know, love the challenge of, you know, going to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times or Bloomberg Radio and shaping that pitch and getting my client in there and then seeing their delight and you know, getting them, you know, those placements. And then I've always said, you know, to the reporter, if my client is happy, I am happy and you've made them happy. So that has always been the thing that makes me the most excited is to score that hit. And the more difficult it is to score, the the more excited I get. One of my clients, um, this was years ago when we started, it was a pro bono account. It was the pajama program and they provide uh, new pajamas to children in need and they wanted to be in O Magazine and it took us two years to get I believe it Yes, it was so hard. But you know what? When that article came out it was a full column they got so much valuable attention in terms of donations in terms of people wanting to work with them, volunteers, and they even got letters from Europe, Iraq, Italy. So, so wait, I'm curious because I'm, yes. I, I want to know the inner workings of that. Okay. How, yeah, tell me the, the short story a little bit of how you got into, how you got your client into Oprah Magazine and why it took two years. I mean, I'm not surprised, but what was the, the buildup? You know, first of all, as I said earlier in our interview, you have to target the right person. Then once you identify that person, you have to research the reporter. What are they writing about? What is the their their interest? And then you start shaping the pitch and you send it out to the reporter. Now, keep in mind that they may never have worked with you. They don't, your, don't know your name. They don't know the charity because at the time the pajama program was very, very grassroots. And if you don't hear from them, then you wait a bit. And then you keep them in the loop about what is going on with the organization. For example, we got them on your old channel, New York One. We, you know, wrote about that and we sent it off to the reporter. Like, this is what they're doing. When they had a milestone, we sent that information to the reporter. When we had a press release, we sent it off to the reporter. So we kept building up this relationship. We kept being visible to the reporter. And then finally, we did a couple more pitches and then she responded. And so it was a couple of years. It was constantly being in front of the reporter in a strategic manner. We never said, oh, we're just going to throw these things at her. Like we did this, we did that. We made sure that it was top level. O Magazine is a national magazine. So we made uh, sure that the information we sent wasn't on a regional level. It was also national in scope as well. So by doing that, being strategic, staying in front of the reporter, providing her with information that we knew that she would eventually be interested in, and also knowing the direction of O Magazine enabled us to get that column into the publication. And so it's a little bit of a one-sided conversation for a while, right? Because you Mm -hmm. may not hear back. And I have to say, you know, I don't uh, pitch people for me, but I, I have pitched I've tried to reach out to guests to come on this podcast and you, it's, you know, I, I will, it'll take me sometimes an hour to write what I think is the perfect email. And sometimes you get a response and sometimes you don't. And sometimes they say yes. And it's just a matter of crossing your fingers and, and not taking 
uh, crickets as a known. <laughs> no, you know why the crickets sometimes just means that they're so busy. You know, one reporter told me she gets 900 emails a day. That is ridiculous. And so she said, and she sent an email to my associate um, who was communicating with her. And she goes, if I sound abrupt, it's because I'm getting this amount of emails. And sometimes I just have to kick out a response. So I always say that if you don't hear from them, it doesn't mean that it's a no. It may be that they just haven't gone to it. It may have gotten lost in the, the 900 emails. And just to gently continue. But if you get an email back and they say no, don't push it. Don't say, you know, well, I'm going to keep sending this to you. Move on. Because if they say no, they mean no. But if you don't hear anything, I also say, you know, do a gentle follow-up. Uh, call them up, but know their deadline. And then the other thing is if they don't feel comfortable calling the person, then take the email that they sent originally, wait a couple of days, and resend it. And I can't begin to tell you how many times we have been able to place clients and the reporter has said, thank you so much. I either didn't get it or I meant to get back to you and I appreciate the follow-up. But the one thing is don't become a pest. Just yes. do it very gently because after a while, you're not even going to look at the email. Right. No. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who don't follow that rule. Yeah. And I was mm. talking to a reporter who worked for Market Watch Radio and she too obviously got a lot of emails. And what she was telling me, I was mortified when there were some publicists who were pitching her and the emails were rife with misspellings, uh, weren't grammatical, mm. and she just didn't even read it. And she would just toss it. And I say to those, especially um, some of my coaching clients, that if you're going to send an email, you know, run it past me or have somebody double check it because this email is your calling card. Mm-hmm. It's your one chance to get in front of this person. It's uh, pre- you're presenting yourself. You have to do it perfect. And if you don't do it, and if it's you know, if you have a lowercase i instead of an uppercase i, or you take too long to get to the point, they're not going to pay attention to you. Right. Well, no doubt, Jennifer. You've been named one of the top black CEOs, entrepreneurs in this country. And congratulations on your new book, The Little Book of Big PR. I want to talk a little bit about that and then transition over to the So Money Q&A. Tell us about The Little Book of Big PR, a hundred, more than a hundred quick tips to grow your small business. What is your favorite tip out of the hundred if you had to pick one? I know that's a hard question. It's kind of an annoying question. I'm sorry, but... Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Not at all. I would say my one of my favorite tips is in the networking section. And the reason being is that for my business and for um, other entrepreneurs I've learned, you get a lot of business out of networking. And what I say is, is that you have to just not make the contact, but you have to continue the relationship. And with networking, it's not just a take, take, take. You have to give, and you have to give without the expectation of getting something back. And it sounds very odd, but within a professional networking relationship, after you've identified the people, the organization that you want to 
become part of your universe, you have to work for it. And you have to show them that you're sincere. And by following up, offering yourself, saying, you know, is there anything I can do for you? And following up on that, that it really does help. It helps to grow your business. It helps get you in front of people who can assist you in many different professional ways. And I and most people, you know, networking is still a hot topic, but I think it's more focused on just meeting people. People forget that after you meet the person that you have to continue and authentically grow the relationship. Right. Excited to introduce Audible.com as today's show sponsor. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products, including my own books, Psych Yourself Rich and When She Makes More. And for so many listeners, the company, get this, wants to give you a free audiobook and a 30-day trial today. Just sign up at audible.com forward slash so money. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com forward slash so money. I think I couldn't agree more with that. And um, it's not a coincidence that so many of my previous guests on this show who've gone on to become really successful and, and they attribute their their network and their ability to, uh, you know, connect with people that it's for you could go years and just give yourself to to others. And then one day you know, you, you get yours and, um, and you don't go with this expectation that I'm helping in order to receive help in return that, um, it's in this world where everything is so cutthroat. So I agree. In, like unpersonal, you know, and, uh, that, that you will stand out with your authenticity and your generosity and your, uh, your motivation, which is just to be there to help. And not just to say, Hey, can, how can I help you? But it's even better if you can do some research and figure out what yes. this person needs. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that I do in terms of what I call the post networking relationship is that if I have events, and I know that they'll be interested in, um, I'll invite them and I'll pick up their tab. Uh, if I see an article that I think will be of value to them, I will send it out to them. If I meet somebody, and I'm doing it right now, uh, who I think that they should know, I will put the two people together. So it's just so many different ways you can continue that relationship. And again, in the long run, it will benefit you. Yes. So Jennifer, tell me a little bit about your take on money as an entrepreneur, as a woman, as a real estate owner, you're, you know, uh, you're very, you're so money. Um, tell me a little bit about your financial philosophy. Do you have a money mantra that you, uh, that you adhere to? Yes. Live beneath your means. And I am single. I don't have children. And the only money that comes in is the money I generate for myself. I have to take care of myself. And so I make sure that if something happens, I have a very healthy nest egg to float me through what may be uh, a difficult time. I also have plenty of insurance. I have life insurance. I have long-term care insurance. I have disability insurance. And all of this really stems from my mother. When my parents divorced, 
Um, my mother took custody of me and my sister, and she used to call us her $2 million, and uh, we weren't, but... Um, you know, it was very difficult for her. She was a nurse, and she worked her ass off for us, and we were living in a one-bedroom apartment, and when we got there, we had so little money that we all slept in one bed, and then my mother saved, and then she bought two extra beds, and then we all had our beds to sleep in, and then it took her six years, and she scrimped, and she saved, and then she was able to buy a two-family house. Each of us got our own bedroom, and she lived, she was a role model by living her life, and she always made sure, and we didn't have a lot of money, but I never felt that I didn't have, and she she made us realize that money isn't something that's frivolous, um, it's there to assist, and so with my professional life, is that um, one of the things I take great pride in is that I always pay my contractors. And for those out there who are listening, it's like, oh, of course, you know, you're going to pay your people. But with any <laughs> you're, you're not a deadbeat. Okay. No, no. But the thing about it is that with every entrepreneur I've spoken to this has happened, sometimes you just don't get paid or get paid on time. And I have, there have been times when I just haven't gotten paid. And so I'm not going to look at my, the people who work for me and say, I'm sorry, I didn't get paid, so you're not getting paid. They, they did the work. So I make sure that I have enough money that if a client, for whatever reason, misses a payment or two, their salaries are protected. And so by living beneath your means, keeping um, uh, a close eye on your profit loss statement, um, being a hawk about making sure that you have a cushion, whether it's professionally or, or, or personally, will take a lot of stress out of your life. So live beneath your means. But on the flip side, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't splurge every once in a while because you know what? We do work and we should splurge every now and then. When you were growing up with your single mom and sharing the bed and living very much below your means, how did you imagine adulthood for yourself and how did you imagine you independently, Jennifer, like, did you think you would grow up one day to be an entrepreneur and have wealth or what, how did you look to the future? You know, that's a, a great question. And my mother stressed education and financial independence. So when I was growing up, I, my mother didn't read us fairy tales. I never jumped to being married or, or anything like that. I jumped about working and I was excited about working. And it was something that I always wanted to do. Now, being an entrepreneur, no, that never crossed my mind. I saw myself as an employee. And I became an entrepreneur almost by accident. I was working at Ketchum, and by that time, I'd been in PR, I don't know, maybe you know, 20, 25 years, whatever. And I was just exhausted and burned out, and it was right after 9-11, and I had uh, lost my mother, and I just needed time off. And so I resigned, and I took a year off. And then when I was ready to go back into the work world, I started half-heartedly sending out resumes. And I didn't want to go back into the environment that I left. 
and I decided to create an environment that I wanted to work in, and that was the birth of the, the Borland Group. And so I went out and I took classes at uh, the Science, Industry, and Business Library here in New York. I went to the SBA, and as it turns out, I have a business mind. And what I say to people is that if you have the craft, the knowledge of the craft, that's good. But you need to know business because there's no way you are going to be successful if you don't have a business model that will enable you to sell, to generate income if you don't know how to run the business. And I make sure that I go to classes, I stay up to speed on what's happening out there. I also have a financial team. I don't have a degree in finance, so I have a top-notch bookkeeper. I have uh, an accountant, and I speak to them on a regular basis. I check my statements on a regular basis. basis. We have reports, and I make sure that everything is up to snuff because, yes, you have the knowledge, but that knowledge will not generate revenue alone. You have to have it housed in a business model that's profitable and viable for the long term. But surely along the way, you made a mistake or two. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm only guessing. I think we all are vulnerable to making some failures, big and small. What would you say, what would you say is your greatest financial failure? I'm thinking. Um, With the financial failure, I I have to say that we have been steady throughout all of our years and obviously have grown. What I would like to say is that um, in the beginning of the Borland Group, I didn't network because at the time, this was pre the Great Recession, and the business just fell into my lap, and those days will never come again. But And at the time, I had focused in on real estate. That's where I got my first client. And I used to do high-tech PR for Ketchum, and I started to see the same thing in real estate that I saw in technology. It was getting too bubbling. So that's when I decided to really become aggressive, diversify the business, and to go out there and promote it. And that's what really saved the company during the Great Recession. So I would say to flip it around and say that I wish that I had networked as aggressively um, now, um, back then, uh, because we probably um, would be, uh, we probably would have had a greater nest. But overall, it was something that really, turned out to be a blessing in disguise because Mm. if we hadn't diversified, I don't know what we would have done. So your failure ended up being one of your greatest successes. Yes, you learned from it. And you know what they say that it's not the failure, it's learning how to learn from it. Mm. And I tell my staff, I don't care if you make a mistake, I care when you don't learn from it. We all make mistakes. Well, what about a financial win? Like, I know you've been very lucky with real estate. Um, not luck. I mean, you are, you're smart about it too, but there's an element of luck to real estate. Let's, as I, I can say that for myself too, it's timing. It's, uh, it's sometimes just guesswork, but surely you have to also be strategic. What would you say is your proudest financial moment? Your so money moment. My so money moment is because a lot of people still 
look at me agog when I say this, when I say that I have made substantial earnings from Facebook, from social media. Huh, do tell. Yes. And I started my my professional Facebook career, so to speak, about eight years ago. And I use it for my business. It's not personal. And I tracked the news feed. I strategically selected who I was going to connect with. I know what I am posting. I'm very careful about it. I talk about my business. I talk about what my clients are doing, not in a boastful way, but to underscore what we do. And from Facebook, I have generated and you know, hand to God, I've generated tens of thousands of dollars from Facebook. I've gotten new accounts off Facebook. I've had people refer me because of what they have seen, what I have done on Facebook. And it is one of the most underused tools by entrepreneurs is Facebook and generating income off it. You can sit at your desk and you can get Mm. clients from all over the world. It really is an amazing revenue enhancement tool. And I would advise entrepreneurs to take a look at their social media and start monetizing it. Well, it's really about putting your best foot forward online. It's exciting to share. People like reading that stuff. They don't necessarily see that as self-promotion, right? They like to say, oh, wow. You know, you have to be careful because you don't want to come off as being too, oh, look at me, how wonderful right, right. I am. So how, you do you, how, do you, how do you balance that? How do you compromise you to- that? You have to show the value that you are providing to the client. And you say, you know, this client was in this publication and this is how they helped it, it helped them. And if you show a steady stream of placements for a variety of clients and explain why it is important to them and how it helps their business and how it increases their visibility and differentiates them from others in their market so that they get their unfair share, then other people are going to start looking at it. You know how you have to say rice is white 10,000 times before somebody says, oh, rice is white. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Rice is white, right. (laughs) Sometimes it's brown, but yes, it is white usually. Yes, usually you're brown or whatever. But it's just that you have to be consistent. And so by doing that, and again, speaking in a voice, I don't use Hootsuite for all of my... Um, social media. I post individually because you have to use a different voice for each of them. And on Facebook, I talk in a conversational voice. And I use a lot of visuals. And in LinkedIn, a little bit more brief and tighter. And on Twitter, obviously, with 140 characters, I really use, uh, strategically use the hashtags and the at symbol so it carries over. But you just have to really know your audience, what Facebook tool to use, and then show your value um, by showing what you're doing for the client. And the other thing very quickly, read your news feed. Read it. That's how I picked up a client because he had put down uh, that he had been interviewing for PR firms. And I went to him and I said, why haven't you talked to me? You know, I would love to, you know pitch my hat and put my hat into the ring. And he said, sure, I didn't think you had time. And I met with him and he became a client. Boom, just like that. Yeah, by reading my Facebook feed and and not being afraid to ask. Mm. What's a habit that you practice, a financial habit that helps you with your, your, uh, your, your money and your wealth management? 
the financial habit that I do, and I know that other guests have said the same thing, is that I don't like debt, and I don't have any debt, um, except for my, I would say, my apartment. And I could pay that off, but I want to keep it for um, tax purposes. But every credit card, every bill is paid in full, and... I don't like late charges or anything like that, so I make sure that everything is paid in full. I make sure that I have, obviously, enough money to to cover everything. I have never had a bounce check professionally or personally in my entire life, and I'm so proud of that. So my financial habit is to make sure that I keep track of my finances, pay my bills in full, and and make sure that I have more than enough of a nest egg in case something happens and have enough insurance to cover me. So I have multiple habits. What's what's your nest egg amount so that if something happened, how well would you be able to just ride off that? How many months, a year, two years? Uh, a couple of years. All right. Yeah, yeah. I saved like a squirrel. <laughs> and I had one boyfriend say to me, Jennifer, you're frugal. And he said, yeah, I, I am thrifty. I am. But, you know, again, I make, I, I don't have anybody else coming in to give me money. It's me, myself, and I. And so I have to make sure that I take care of myself. And so with that nest egg, you never know what's going to happen. And so it's, it's really very comforting for me to know that I have that nest egg and know that it's there because I believe that sometimes the amount is usually like three to six months. But nowadays, it seems like it takes longer to get a job or whatever. And for whatever reason, you know, you don't want to stress yourself out. Just, you know, save, have a good time, but save your money and live beneath your means comfortably. All right, Jennifer, you ready for some so money fill in the blanks? Yes, I am. Okay, this is where I start a sentence and you finish it. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is... Contact a high net worth advisor because that lottery, right now, um, I think it's around, what, a billion dollars? I know. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Maybe the only time that I would say it's okay to buy a ticket if you want to throw a dollar into the pot, that's fine. Yes, but even if it's a hundred million, I think going to a high net worth investor, someone who specializes in that level of money and knowing where to park it. And but honestly, that much money, you don't need to invest. <laughs> it, will, it will feed you and generations to come. And it, it I mean, will, that's, will, that, but you know, knowing yeah. where to put it because, you know, do you put it in one bank? Do you put it in multiple banks? What well, do you sure. Do? You have to spread it out because of FDIC limitations. Um, yes. Exactly, exactly. But one of the things I would do physically is that I would totally remodel my apartment um, from stem to stern. And then the other thing I would do is to make sure that uh, my family members get a college education. That would be um, first, well, among the first things I would do is to make sure that those who want to be educated would be educated. That's great. 
Uh, do we know who won Powerball? We're taping this um, January or mid-January, so I'm yes. not sure if they know yet. No, no, not yet. And uh, right now they're expecting at this point that the, the money is uh, at $1.5 billion. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, I, I forget the next sentence. Um, that's just such a big number. But, so this is the next sentence. Um, one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is... The gym, my gym membership. And I'll tell you why. Years ago, I had a client and he was asked, you know, what's the most important thing to you? And he is married and has the most adorable children. I thought he was going to say his family. And he goes, my health. And he goes, if I don't have my health, I cannot work. If I cannot work, I cannot provide. If I cannot provide, my family will not be able to live adequately. And with my membership, I, you know, I go there, I exercise, I am healthy, I am fit, and health is precious because without it, you really, it sounds corny, but you really don't have anything. And again, if I can't work, there's no revenue coming in. Mm. So I think that the monies I spend for my gym membership are monies well spent. I have a lot of guests on this show that equate health with wealth. The healthier you are, the cl- more clarity you have in life, right? Yeah. And, and the more energy you have and, and it just, it's, um, it feeds into it. My biggest splurge that I spend a lot of money on is? Pocketbooks. I love my handbags. And I think that with my next apartment that I'll buy with the lottery winnings, we'll have just a room for... Uh, for my pocketbooks. And, you know, <laughs> your I, art is your pocketbooks. Yeah. Oh, yes. I love them. Love them. Uh, can you tell that I love them? And uh, they're, you know. Why don't you tell me what you really feel? <laughs> I kind of like them, you know, and my, my friend was saying, you know, where did you get this, you know, passion? And it, I, I really don't know. I just love beautiful handbags. And whether they're they're Kate Spade or or Bendel or whatever, I be I become known. It's like my part of my personal brand is my um, mm. handbag. So I I will spend on handbags. That's my splurge. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is that's you know, such a hard one, and I would say that you should. Have a, this is going to be contrary to some of the things I said, but I would say, you know, because I was always focused on on saving, saving, saving. And I think that it's okay every now and then to spend a little bit on something that makes you happy, whether it's a, a trip or a vacation. You know, with my mother, again, using her as my role model, when she retired, I, if I remember correctly, she had over a year's worth of vacation and sick leave. And, um, and I would say that I would, you know, take a little bit and just have a little bit more fun with it because you can't take it with you at the end of the day. Right on. Mm-hmm. Um, when I donate, I like to give to blank because? Because, and I do give financially, but what I started to do in 2015, um, because when you give financially, you don't see the results. You can hear about it, et cetera, et cetera. So I like to donate my time, and I have worked with um, a church where we bag food and toiletries and clothing and distribute it hand-to-hand to the homeless, and to see their faces and to know that you're making a day that may be hard a little less hard, 
again, I work with children, and many of them are in, they're about to be placed in the foster care system. They've been taken out of their homes, and sometimes it can be quite, quite stressful and, and tumultuous for them, and they can be in a state of shock. And, you know, to work with them directly and show them that somebody loves them and cares for them, and you sit down and you read to them, it is the most precious thing. And uh, working with other women and advising them and mentoring them, it's something that I love. So, yes, donate financially, but also to be there in, in physically and in spirit and connecting with the person and giving yourself back. Um, I lead a very blessed life, and to be able to share that with someone makes me quite happy. And last but not least, I'm Jennifer Witter, and I'm so money because? Uh, because uh, I, I came from really very little, and here I am, uh, the CEO of a successful company, being honored by being named one of the top black CEOs in this country, and knowing that the, what I learned from my mother in terms of finances and work ethic that, you know, she's up there and she's proud of me and that I am representing my race and my culture well. Bravo. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And I only wish that we had done this interview sooner, but uh, good things come <laughs> to yeah, those who wait. You know what? We're doing it now. And thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. And you know that I'm always cheering you on, okay? Thank you. I really, I, I love you. Thank you so much. Jennifer, have a great rest of your year. We, of course, will be in touch, but I'm looking forward to also seeing you have another prosperous year. Thank you. And thank you again for this opportunity. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Jennifer, check out theborlandgroup.com. Jennifer is all over the social media. Check her out on Facebook and on Twitter. All the links are back at somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, if you'd like to leave me a little love note or leave a comment or a question about what's going on in your finances, send that to uh, somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh and that'll prompt you to type in what's on your mind. And that goes right into my inbox. I read everything. And so looking forward to connecting with you. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money. Money.